On the new podcast, American Criminal, you'll learn about the fraud, theft, and murder that marks the dark side of the American dream. Like the Menendez murders, was it two greedy kids who killed their parents for money, or is there more? Listen to American Criminal wherever you get your podcasts. Hey out there, rock and rollers. Welcome to the 123rd episode of the Ugly American Werewolf in London Rock Podcast. Brought to you by me, your host, Mac B. the Wolf. And I will be joined, as always, by my partner in crime from the East Coast of the U.S., Gary Action Jackson. And for those of you who haven't been following along, I'm no longer in London. Yeah, I was in London for three and a half years, just down the street from Abbey Road. But I had to move back to America. little stint in the Netherlands in between there. But don't worry, our show is about bands who make it in the U.S. and the U.K., and sometimes certain bands make it one place, but they don't make it in the other. And we always like to explore why, the dichotomy of that. Why is it? Is it because culturally they're not a fit? Is it because their A&R man dropped the ball? Is because they were ahead of their time? Is before their time? One culture just didn't get it? Hard to know sometimes. And the band we're talking about today is a band that fits very neatly in the category of made it in the UK, had platinum and gold records and a very strong following, but is very much unknown to the average U.S. rock fan. They may have a cult following here, but it hasn't ever grown greater than that, and that's Marillion. We're very much a prog-based band, and for the folks who have been listening to us, you know that Jax and I have gone through a very big prog phase over these last several years. For me, it's been around an eight- or ten-year journey here once I discovered Steve Hackett, and his era of Genesis. I'm like, wow, that's really amazing stuff. Why wasn't that more popular? Why don't they play that on American radio? And Prague sometimes has a hard time getting caught on. I think it's very English subgenre. I think you have to be pretty smart to understand it. Maybe not to appreciate the music, but sometimes the lyrics can be pretty heady, and it's not just ACDC straight ahead kind of thing. So it's taken me a while to figure it out, to understand it. Uh, and when I was living in England, I wanted to get more into Marillion and understand them better. And 1983 saw their debut album, Script for a Jester's Tear, which to many is a masterpiece. At least it's a great way to kick off this incredible career they've had for 40 years plus, really, now. And so to help us better understand this band and this album, we brought in an English musician, Jimmy Madden. He's kind of an independent artist, but he's growing all the time. He's got kind of a prog glam 70s thing going on where he's got the image but he's also got the music to go along with it he's a super guy we met him a while back and i know he's starting to grow in popularity here in america so we thought let's have him on not only to promote his music and what he's up to but to help educate americans like us and a lot a lot of our listeners who may not be that familiar with marillion may not be very familiar with this album uh, and maybe he can serve as a guide kind of to, to show us why this is valuable, why it made it in England. And maybe we can explore a little bit about why it never really took off in the U.S. as well. Now, before we get into that, we have to do a little bit of business here. And we always love to mention that we are proud members of the Pantheon Podcast Network, which has about 100 different shows, really all genres, something in there for everybody. And you can check out PantheonPodcast.com or follow them at Pantheon Pods. There's also an app where you can get all of the different podcasts and episodes on there. Uh, and we like to give shout-outs to the folks who we've had on from onto our show, or maybe we've been on their show, like Jay from The Hook Rocks, like Christy Alexander-Hallberg of Rock is Lit, 
Martin Popoff of History in Five Songs, who I think we give a shout out on this episode, like our dear friend in England, Paul Stevenson of This Day Rocks and Vintage Rock Pod, like Tom and Zeus of the Shout It Out Loud cast, who are still knee-deep in their Ultimate Kiss bracket for March Madness, and of course, the CEO and co-founder of Pantheon Pods, Christian Swain of Rock and Roll Archaeology. And importantly, we have to give a shout out to our incredible sponsor, RareVinyl.com. Look, guys, I know there are a lot of record collectors, record buyers out there who love to have original stuff. LPs, of course, more popular than they've been in decades. Go to RareVinyl.com. They've got over a quarter of a million items in stock. They take great care of this stuff, and they ship it all around the world. I've met their team. They're brilliant, and I know that they have some great Marillion stuff. So if you're looking at a first edition script for a jester's tier, or you're looking at some original, whether it's the Fish era, the Hogarth era, or even some of their solo albums, go to rarevinyl.com and use code PODCAST, P-O-D-C-A-S-T, and you can save 10% off your orders. They ship all around the world. So whatever you're looking for, go to rarevinyl.com or EIL.com, use code PODCAST, save yourself 10%, whether it's on that Marillion treasure that you've been looking for for a long time. They have this amazing artwork that looks great on an LP. Rare Vinyl's got some of them, so go to rarevinyl.com, use code PODCAST, save yourself 10%. But back to Jimmy and to Marillion, I got to say that I, as a rock fan who listened to classic rock basically his whole life, never got anything from Marillion. They never played them on classic rock stations. I'm listening to these songs, some of which were into the charts in the UK. Had never heard them before listening to this album. Never saw their videos. They were never played on MTV back in the day. So as an American, I'm underexposed to this band, and I feel like a lot of other people are. And that's why we decided maybe step out of our comfort zone a little bit. It's like, well, we, we say we like Prague, and we're experimenting more and listening to more of it. This is something we need to explore. This is something we need to know more about. And I'm glad we have a guide in Jimmy to kind of show us what its cultural significance is in England and why it's important, especially from a musician's standpoint. So with that, we're going to go ahead and get into it here. We're happy to welcome Jimmy Madden to teach us about Marillion's script for a jester's tear as it turns 40 right here on The Wolf. Hey, Pantheon listeners, Christian Swain here. You caught me just finishing up some editing on Getting Real with John and Beth. I want to share my first experience with Factor Meals for you. I think you'll find this interesting because I bet the same thing happens to you. I had just received my first shipment from Factor Meals the other day, and I was excited to try one of the prepared restaurant-quality meals for myself. Anyway, I was working away and noticed it was very late, and it was my night to make dinner. I jumped up and headed to the kitchen, went to grab the ingredients for the dish I was going to make, and realized I was missing a prime ingredient. Well, I could make a run to the store, or I could make one of my new Factor meals. <laughs> Actually, the choice was easy. I grabbed a cavatappi, an Italian-style pork ragu with garlic broccoli, heated the oven per instructions, and minutes later was enjoying a very delicious, nutritious, and dietitian approved meal. It really was everything Factor Meals said it would be. No prep, no mess meals. Factor Meals are 100% ready to heat and eat. Take it from me and head to factormeals.com slash pantheon50 and use the code Pantheon50 to get 50% off. That's factormeals.com slash Pantheon50 and use the code Pantheon50 to get 50% off. 
you know, we want to welcome here Jimmy Madden to the Ugly American Werewolf. I, obviously, we've been to to see some of your YouTube videos and things like that. You're definitely into Prague, Jimmy, but it seems you got a little bit of that 70s English glam going on with your style there. You want to tell us a little bit about your musical origins and, and what you were influenced by? Yeah, no, you bang on the money there. And particularly that, the latest record I've just come out with, Jimmy Madden 2, was very much one to go down that sort of find like the album in between like T-Rex's Electric Warrior right. and then the Stones' Exile on Main Street, you know, and I think, I, I just think Exile on Main Street's one of the great underrated records, really. So that was, yeah, it was like trying to combine those two uh, into it, which were, you know, it was funny, it was recorded at like four o'clock in the morning in a studio built underneath like a football ground here in Sheffield and it was snowing outside. You know, where me and the producer in this little studio like sort of smoked cigarettes and shots of whiskey that we kind of, I'm trying to get what's in my head down, you know, and he's just sort of trying to follow along. You know, when we got there, you know, the whole thing was recorded really quickly oh, as well. Wow. We spent like 10-hour sessions in there. But yeah, but you know, and a lot of the music that I suppose I grew up listening to, I brought into that record, you know. I mean, I really probably listened, that's a bit cliche, in it? But I really did sort of try and listen to everything growing up. I think probably was surrounded by sort of, you know, the sophistication of like opera music early on. And then, you know, my dad would have the, mm -hmm. you know, Clash records and Sex Pistol records, like, you know, as well. So it would sort of be, any, you know, anywhere across that sort of musical spectrum. I mean, my big band, I've, I've spoken about this in so many interviews, and, you know, I've got to be weary not to sort of just talk about them, but Queen were, like, and still is my number one, you know I mean? They're, yeah. Whatever they did, like the musical Bible that I sort of follow, you know, in, in sound. So there's a lot of, I mean, Queen, funny enough, weren't like a massive band in like my household growing up. Then my parents liked him, but they weren't like me. It was just okay. fucking obsessed, like a knotter on it. And, uh, you, you know, but they, they really became number one. And then, you know, I think it's like growing up, it's like to delve into like the Elvis Presley and Johnny Cash. Nice. At one point, I wanted to be Johnny Cash. I had the quiff and everything and brokering, <laughs> you know, in high school. There weren't very many 16-year-olds when I was at high school with bro cream in their hair and, you know. I'm sure not. But, yeah, you know, I, I, so I think musically, you know, it were a little bit of, of, of everything. That sounds, the uh, the record sounds pretty rock and roll. Smoking and drinking mm -hmm. at 4 o'clock in the morning, it doesn't get uh, doesn't get better than that. No, and it was funny. I think there was definitely a vibe that I was looking for, which was like that's Exile on Main Street, you know, approach. And only trying to reenact that, the best that we could in in Sheffield in 2022 because I think it was sort of December time. You know, we had to try and bring that in and and with these songs, I a couple of the songs have been ones being with me for a long time and being played on tours all around. So in you know for me it was like okay how do I get back into the headspace when I was 18 I wrote this so we can get it on on record and yeah that just seemed to be the 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 easiest option. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I mean, and you mentioned T-Rex. When I listen to your song, Do I Turn You On, that's kind of what immediately comes to mind right there. I'm like, yeah, this has definitely got a Mark Bolin T-Rex thing going on. There's guitar and piano on that. Do you play all the instruments on your record? Yeah, I do. So, yeah, I, I think there's parts of like the drumming, I'll bring people in, the parts I can't do. Uh, as then with the piano, you know, I can play enough of I mean, I'm not musically trained in, in anything, but I can play enough of a piano to sort of write and have ideas on. But for the fiddly bits and stuff like that, I really kind of, I usually at that point I get people in. I'll try it. Uh, you know, my ego needs to be bruised first and then I'll. I'll, I'll... <laughs> 
So did you learn you. just by hearing, like listening to records and then, you know, going over to the piano or whatever and trying to replicate that? Is that how you learn to play? Well, for the, for the most part, I saw, took up bass guitar lessons in primary school, mm-hmm. um, oh, wow. really. But, you know, it doesn't attract enough women. To bass guitar. <laughs> so, That's true. Yeah, I'd sign that one off for, for the electric guitar. And I did have lessons with mate's dad, who was a, a competent musician, you know, growing up. Did give me lessons for about six months or a year, but then I was sort of quite determined on trying to do things my way that went the traditional way. And so, <laughs> good for you. Uh, I thought, well, you know, I'll, I'll just go and take it from there. But I mean, I've always had a belief in, in music, and I'm, I'm sure someone's going to say that this is terrible advice, but I do believe you can be overtrained. You know, I know some br- technically brilliant guitarists mm-hmm. who just don't have any feel to their playing. And and for me, I think there's a fine line between knowing what you're doing and knowing too much and then just it being too analytical about. I think you need to keep, you know, when I go to the studio, I know how I want a solo to sound or a, a harmony, you know, arrangement. Because I love building those orchestral harmonies with the guitar, like building up string lines and horn lines, but using my guitar and making that the ensemble and trying to see how far I can take one guitar. So I've got an idea of how they're going to sound. And I might write out a few movements, but for the most part, I kind of like to get in there and feel the song in the moment and, and then lay that down. Because I think that you never know in the studio how a song's actually going to come out until it's been done. Sure. You know, you can think it's going to be a slow ballad and then it evolves and gets a laugh of its own and the bass line gets bouncy and the drums get bouncier and it's this upbeat near disco record, <laughs> you know. And so I, I think if you try and think too much before you've actually played it i, I think you do yourself out with some good ideas yeah I, I i'm kind of with you there you know i mean i think you can be too clinical it, i mean there's nothing wrong with training there's nothing wrong with study and, and trying to be amazing at your instrument but just because you lay something down that's technically amazing doesn't mean it has any life or breath to it you know i i feel like it's the same thing with sports you could be very technically gifted but you know sometimes you need a little street ball in you to, to really get the point across right yeah and and you mentioned queen i mean love symphony number one i mean besides your logo which is obviously somewhat inspired by theirs i thought love symphony number one had a little bit of that queenness to it with some of the time signature changes and the you know going from one tempo to the other there was that kind of what you were going for there that was definitely the scratching itch that record yeah. it was it were the original start of the second album that record and then lockdown came mm. and that that song we just realized that and i was flying I, that was recorded in australia as well and i was flying out in australia not long sort of before that record finished and we were in and out of lockdowns and we all those vocal harmonies had to be thrown on in, you know, we'll get like a two-hour window and then I'll be recording and uh, the producer, uh, Pete B, who would come over the cans and say, right, you've got to get as much down as you can in the next 45 minutes because they just announced a lockdown that's happening at seven tonight. So I'll be in the vocal booth thinking, ah, oh, shit, 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 and, and start throwing just as many vocal takes and guitar things as I could. And I knew I wouldn't be around to mix it because I knew I was going to be out in the country, you know, right. I, sort of, just finished it really maybe a good thing it's already over the top as it is i don't know if i needed any more time on it <laughs> you know and then left it repeated to completely mix massive work out what the hell to do with there's about 400 vocal and guitar you know tracks in there and he's trying to piece them all together wow. you know and i've got i like this idea of not repeating the same harmony balance twice you know so if you got like a, a three-part harmony in a 
in instead of going in a certain order on the next one, and maybe the same notes, but they're going in a slightly different order just to change up the sound. So he's got these bits of vocals everywhere, and you know, I, funny enough, I did think he was actually going to do it, and I got an email one day saying, right, here's that song, and yeah, I was very happy with it. But I think that was the sort of scratch an itch of like I can go over the, I can do these slight operatic ideas and poncing about in the studio and then there was an element with some of the other tracks that done like make love that i did here which was the polar opposite to show that i can also do a straightforward sort of one take rock and roll number with, with there's still harmonies on that record but they're minimal and now it's to sort of show the the contrasting styles of you know i can do this over the top big arrangement ballad and then i can also still strip it back to sort of show that I, I don't just hide behind all the techniques of multi-layering you know you still can have that just me sound which this last record actually has the whole way through yeah your talk dirty to me song i i dig and that's very that's very straight ahead rock yeah it's it's yeah. It, right in your face good riffs good come on here we go kind of thing love that one man yeah and that was really what led me to do go okay let's just do another album I had the very rarely do I think of my own tracks. Well, this is good, you know. But I remember playing that one. I thought that's good actually, and I could hear the drum, the do, 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 sort of parts of the drums in my head. And I thought, gee, I don't want to release that and have nothing to follow up with it. And then thought, and then really a bit of an opportunity came about to do this album in this short time frame that we had. So it was try and take as much of that that sound. I mean, there's still a song on the new album that's. Uh, it's a waltz, and it's me on the piano going like a bum, 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 you know, because why not? <laughs> you know, I'm not laughing, why not have a, a waltz in there? And so, you you, you know, there, there was, there's still lots of, there's a sophistication within amongst the sort of gritty rock and roll. That where it comes from, I'm not too sure. <laughs> yeah. no. no, that's great. And that's very prog, right? It's experimental. It doesn't all sound like one thing, you know, and it can move from the spectrums of, Maybe something heavy and dark, something very light and cheery, maybe even comical if you want. It's, you know, it's it's your call. So And it's funny, you know, I mean, Do You Feel, which is the latest single that came off, the origins of that, I mean, lots. Of, I've seen lots of reviews in magazines about it. They're saying it's a bluesy sort of riff and it's a sort of slow and bluesy track. I mean, it's funny, the whole thing come from disco, the records that I was listening to at the time. You know, everyone's completely so missed the, the point with that. It's the, the big bass sides are just strumming down the frets. It's sort of very 1970s, bony M chick disco stuff that I were, would listen to. And that's where that, that record comes from. So, I mean, the whole album's got elements of, of operatic waltzes and hard in your face rock and roll to these disco sort of beats and stuff that i i was listening to at the, at the time so but i do think i agree with what you say about it being progressive and always different i think you have to always be doing something different you know not fully reinventing yourself but each track needs to stand strong and alone mm -hmm. into the album but you know immediately let people know you never quite know what sound you're going to get and 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 just keep it interesting for the listener you know what i mean when you listen to an album you need those ebbs and flows and i think the one thing that gets missed i think these are just singles being so fashionable is that they miss the ebb and flow of you know the creation of music well that's that's always our kind of our mantra here on this show is that we are album rock fans and that's what you're supposed to do is listen to the whole thing because you're right the single while it may be great to stand on its own you want to listen to it in the context of the whole album because you as the artist put it together that way for me to listen to like you said 
track by track the whole way through yeah you know and it, it's it's interesting you know when i write a song i don't really write the singles I don't, I don't like writing individual songs because if you try and write a single you're so focused on is it catchy is there a hook is there enough bass right. is the yeah. right you know where when you take all of that out of the equation you just record a pure song eight nine ten of them the strongest songs stand out the singles leap out to you mm. um you know, and, and I think the songs are stronger. Nowadays, you know, such this sort of today's hit, tomorrow's fish and chip paper type mentality of you get a new track and, you know, where if you look at the singles that came out in the day, they were sitting in the charts for, for months and months and months and months and months because I think the, the tracks were stronger. They weren't like, yeah, this is catchy, this is good, but there's no substance to it. With you there. Uh, bar a few acts in their mind before someone comes along and says, yeah, we'll have these bands. You know, there are bands like that they were doing good stuff and a lot of the pop hits have such a short shelf life because it is just about pump out a good riff and then move on to the next one that's right you're right man and so uh we're with you there and and we we're album guys and, and guys for for artists and bands who you know have something to say hi this is steve hackett and you're listening to the ugly american werewolf in london Hey, Pantheon listeners, Christian Swain again with something every podcast listener and music junkie needs to hear. As I'm sure you can guess, I listen to a lot of podcasts. I also listen to a lot of music, so having high-quality headphones and earbuds are absolutely critical to my day. Oh, and I have numerous pairs. In fact, I have a junk drawer of used devices that have bitten the dust, so I've tried them all. Recently, I was sent a pair of earbuds by Raycon, and the first thing I noticed was the cost. Uh, looks like their products are about half the price of other premium brands. Okay, that's cool. And the reviews seem pretty stellar. Okay, checks that box. So I got my Raycon Everyday Earbuds, a nice packaging to open, and what I immediately noticed were the pack of ear tips for sizing. Uh, I'll tell you, I have small ear canals. Uh, I know a flaw. So to see choices for the best fit, uh, especially while exercising, uh, oh yeah. And yes, they were immediately comfortable. Sound quality was great too. Plus I have three EQ options that I love because I like more bass in my music and less in the podcasts. Eight hours of playtime for the battery is great as well. Surround sound, noise canceling, and awareness mode all included. I think I'm in business, and I just realized I've had them in all day. Like I said, super comfortable. Go to buyraycon.com slash pantheon today to get 20% off your Raycon order plus free shipping. That's right. You'll get 20% off and free shipping at buyraycon.com slash pantheon. But we want to talk a little bit about Marillion now. And a lot about our show is because I was an American expat until recently. I was living in London and loving to be in all these kind of hallowed grounds, all these places where all this amazing rock and roll has been made over the decades. But our show is also about the, the dichotomy of why some bands might be big in the U.S., but they never quite catch on in the U.K. And then vice versa. Maybe you're big in the U.K. and Europe, but for whatever reason... They don't really catch hold in America. And Marillion is one of those bands of the latter sort, right? They're, they're, they're no well-known in the UK. They've had platinum records. They have a strong fan base around Europe as well. But most people in America don't even know who they are. It's not like, oh, yeah, they had that one song whenever. They don't even have that. No one here knows Kaylee. 
<laughs> no one here knows, you know, he, he knows, you know, no one knows who's this bald guy singing who sounds like Peter Gabriel. It's like, no, that's fish. And he's actually pretty damn good. Like they literally don't know. Like I think the script for a Jester's tear, Jimmy, I know it was kind of came out before you were born. It went to like number seven in the charts of the UK. It went to number 175 in the U S like no airplay whatsoever. <laughs> you know, what's your experience with, Marillion growing up, I mean, was it something you would occasionally hear on certain radio stations or did were friends into it or did you have to grow up and kind of discover it on your own? No, funny enough, my dad was a bit massive Marillion fan around that era oh, where cool. the band came out, you know, and he was like a younger student age, so it was that perfect time. Uh, so he was just a fan, particularly the Fish era fan, you know, uh, of Fish era Marillion. So he was a fan who would just go and see him, you know, when you could probably go and get a ticket flat a pound. Right. You know, and he, he used to go and see him at the town hall in, in Newcastle upon Tyne up in the northeast of England. And, you know, so for me growing up, it was just a band of records that he had and, and kept buying. And he would listen to them in the car when I was growing up, you know, it'd be one of those records. So likewise, I became a fan of theirs by extension. Sure. But like it's similar to, to your experiences, for my age group growing up, very few people knew who they were. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and I, so th there are funny one where as I've gotten older, met more musical people, they're like, yeah, yeah, you're right, they are brilliant band, you know what I mean? All people are very familiar with the current Marillion, you know, the Ho Hogarth era. So, yeah, for, for me, I, I, I definitely think they're a, a wonderfully underrated band. Well, and I think they're, uh, the era in which they came up kind of contributed to them being less popular, at least in the U.S., maybe. Because in 1983, when the script for Adjuster's Tear comes out, and we had Carl Palmer of ELP and, and Asia on the show. He's like, in the 70s, it was brilliant. You could get anything on the radio in America. It was awesome. You, you want to put a 10-minute waltz on there. Like, you know, they'll play it. American DJs will play it. And he's like, as soon as we formed Asia, the record company's like, nope, you can't do that stuff anymore. None of that long, extended stuff you have to be pop you know it has to come in like four minutes or whatever and that's why he wasn't in Emerson Lake and Palmer anymore he was in Asia you know and yes weren't doing uh tales for topographic oceans anymore they were doing owner of a lonely heart you know so they, they had kind of had to switch Genesis was not even close to the same band in 1983 as they were in like 1976 right so but like our our buddy Martin Popoff who is a he has a show on the network we're on, Pantheon, and he's written over a hundred books, one of which was on Marillion. And he kind of credits Marillion with, because like Marillion did get the memo that you have to be punk and then you have to be new wave. They're like, no, we still love this amazing music that people like Genesis and, and Camel and people like that make. So we're just going forward with that. He kind of gives them credit for, for bringing on the second wave of Prague and helping give second life to those bands who kind of had to make a shift in the 80s with the times. Do you have a favorite era? I mean, I know you say you love the fish era, and I think everybody tends to love the fish. N nothing against Hogarth. You know, he's amazing on his own. But I mean, what is it about the fish era and their kind of start out that, that you think resonates with you and, and other people? I, I, I really, and I think it's probably one reason why they maybe didn't quite work in the States. Uh, only just to touch on a point you made about music in the 70s, I did really listen to the album a few, about an hour ago before we came on just to refresh myself and I thought this album would not be out of place in 1973 exactly. you, know, you know but I think one reason that I love them and a lot of people love them maybe the Americans they don't quite understand is there's something beautifully British about that 
There's a British campness to the sort of pantomime style, big costumes and all the makeup and the exotic sort of, you know, that almost sort of spinal tap style stage show that they used to do. Right. You know, was that there is a, a, a very British element to that early albums that they were doing that wouldn't be got by everyone. You know, I don't know how, how successful they were even in parts like Australia and stuff like that in, in the 80s. But I, I love them for that. It's very theatrical. It's sort of lyrically kind of, what? how would you say, Lord of the Rings-esque, some of the lyrics that came out. I mean, like, Script for Justice Tear has just a beautifully written, mm-hmm. almost poetry-like lines in it, captivated by some great chord changes and key changes and tempo changes. And whether it was just a bit too... And it's a hard to pinpoint exactly what this metric is, but whether it was just a bit too British, mm. you know, to to be kind of understood, because I think you always have to be in that world to mm-hmm. to get, you know what I mean? Because I, I, I couldn't tell you what makes it that British bit, but there's something about it that, you know, lots of lots of British actors and, and, and comedians and, and musicians actually have all suffered from. You're right. No, sorry. I'll let you jump in here. Just one second, but I must say we've always said on the show over the years, prog is a very British subgenre of music. It's not that we don't have people who can make these chord changes and and write these kind of often fantastic, fantastical lyrics and things like that. Uh, but you know, selling England by the pound by Genesis is brilliant, but. There's a lot of like little things in the in the lyrics and things like that. You kind of do have to be British, maybe even live through that time to really understand them. So mm. I, I think you're right there. Also, I think his his lyrics are, for lack of a better word, too smart for the average American. You know, it's it's not ACDC. You know, it's not it's long way to the top. Oh yeah, I get that, man. It's you know when you're talking about these kind of things in a, in, the, in a poetic way, like. What what the hell is he talking about? You know, they just don't, they can't catch on. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. It, it's dense. You have to sit there and really listen and and kind of go through the entire album. Listen to what he's saying. There's a lot going on there. I think there are themes that maybe in America we don't, we have, but they're they're not as present. Like uh, in Garden Party, you know, when they talk about, it's kind of about the, the elite, you know, snob culture people being uh, better than other people we have that here but not it's not as prevalent and i was going to say too in 1983 we had what uh twisted sister came out with i want to rock rock that's what we do in the united states right (laughs) it's pretty straightforward and you know it's funny of that music out of england in the 80s there wasn't really that sort of straightforward rock that you know, and again, I didn't live through the 80s in England. I, I was born, you know, but from the music I've picked up and inherited is England didn't really have that. There's a little bit of it in the early 70s with the punk scene, but even if you go back and listen to, like, Nevermind the Bollocks, it's, there's quite a lot of musical validity there that I don't think people realise. It's not just, you know, as someone who loves the Ramones, it's not just that simple G-A-D down strum punk music I, you know i think whilst punk in england was a political movement in the 70s yeah. punk as a musical movement came out of new york i and i, I would i would feel that a lot of people associate pop, the birth of punk being england and and it were was much more a political movement than a in england in the 70s it was that political movement of england on its knees and and you know coming out the aftermath of the wars and the economy and then in the north the roll into the Thatcher years 
Well, I think in America, it was much more your punk because there's a rebellion of yourself against what society was expecting. Well, I think here we'll, mm. we'll, we'll fight the government with it. Yeah, we definitely have a different set of circumstances in the United States. Yeah, it, it was more just the people wanted to hear loud fast music and not so much a, a, a statement against what was going on in, in we didn't really have the same problems in the united states yeah you know and it, it, it's funny if you look at like a chelsea monday off of the marillion record mm -hmm. which i love and funny side topic that record there's a lot of that song in one of the songs of my first album which was outside which oh. I love the little conversational bit at the end. So I, there's a thing like that in, in that record. And there was an idea of the extended guitar solo as well that came off. There was a lot of Chelsea Monday that went, oh, man, fucking I can't have that. <laughs> but, you know, again, there, it comes out that big sort of progressive guitar solo uh, bit mm. that rolls over. And then it goes from hard guitars to an acoustic guitar finger pick before right. it kicked back in, you know, the, and that was very British of that time as well. You know, it's on a lot of early Queen records or transitions from electric guitar to acoustic, even with one guitarist. So those sort of transitions were not something that you're probably hearing in America. And I'm, sh I'm sure it was probably a sense of that people enjoyed the musical validity of it. You know, there's a lot of moving parts to it, you know, and I have seen videos of them doing it live and credit to them because I know a lot of my own stuff is very hard live. But whether... That again, it comes down to that British as a part of my style show, whether that would have been understood. Uh, and as you guys said, in that era in America, it was that, you know, harder and rock and roll. Yeah, riff based, pretty simple, straightforward. You know, you have riff, chorus, a little bit in the middle, you know, the bridge, back to the chorus, and then on the out. Yeah, we, we didn't have a whole lot of changes. And we, there was really, there was nothing on the radio that was eight and a half minutes. <laughs> Yeah. No, and you know, it's funny, even when I, as, as a Motley Crue fan, it, when you think that Nikki Six is openly admitted to loving Queen and those early 70s stuff, the bands like Marin, these British bands from the 70s are doing this stuff. When Push Came to Shove and his band comes out, Motley Crue's first record is released. You know what I mean? If you listen to that first Motley Crue album and then went, oh, by the way, one of his favorite albums is Night at the Opera. <laughs> you, you know, you, you you wouldn't put that together from from that right. connection. But even ingrained in the, in the American who were listening to it weren't attempting that. You know, their glam rock was a much different vision to what it were here. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And speaking of of glam, I mean, the cover art on script for a Jester's Tear done by Mark Wilkinson, and then he went ahead and did. I mean, most of them throughout the eighties. He certainly did Fugazi, which I think came next. He did uh, misplaced childhood and all yeah. childhoods, yeah, all that stuff. It's 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 very vivid. It's it's usually very colorful. It's realistic and yet it's all cartoonish at the same time. Don't you think this had something to do with setting up how people saw? Him? I mean, just like at the same time, Iron Maiden's got Eddie on their album covers, which sets the tone and and gives you a certain. Oh, I can't wait to see what their next album cover looks like. That's part of the experience. That was part of Marillion as well, right? Yeah. No, it, it very much so. You know, it's, it's almost a piece of art, that album cover. In, in, an, in an era where album covers were pieces of art, you know, right. thought went into album covers because it were physical means. Now it's on screen. But, you know, I, I had a lot of conversation with my dad about, you know, how brilliant that album cover is. And um, and then when like, my first record coming out, it was very much a, well, you, you're going to do something like that, aren't you? <laughs> you know? And, uh, but no, you're right. It's, it, I 
that whether I don't know if that's what caught his eye originally or whether it was just one of those, you know, you go out and see who was playing locally and if they were good, you stayed. If they were no good, you went sort of thing. But mm-hmm. I, I know that album cover has been definitely a topic of conversation in terms of the, uh, the, the you know, that, the cover alone is a conversation where we're touching on the music. But you're right, it ties into the music and the cover go hand in hand. Perfect. Now, the only problem is it doesn't necessarily translate to the real world because I know there's a couple of clips of fish wearing, a, I think, a suit that's in that uh, pattern of the jester's pants, and it's it's out there. It is very out there. <laughs> yeah, you know, it's. It, I think that's always what's hard about these sort of productions. You make these mammoth albums, and then you have to tour it on the road. Pink Floyd, that's been the... I, I remember seeing... Uh, sort of Roger Waters doing the, the war tour and how they rebuilt the war. Right. And and that's one of the only times I can think of taking a concept album actually being able to do it live on stage and maybe it only works they were to put blocks off. You know, so I think these albums, it's one of those I've always got a big belief in that an album's an album, a live show's a live show. I don't want to go and see a band play the album exactly like the record. If I want yeah, that, yeah. I'll listen to the record. I want the yeah. live show to be a live performance of the record because you can do things on an album you can't do live that's technically brilliant is a band plays it note for note i don't want to see i'm not going to pay 200 quid to go and see that <laughs> you know i want to see a, a, a live rendition i do think that they did that quite well in trying to capture the essence of it as as, as close as they could you know with probably understanding that they were a band from the north of england that you know sort of fell into this short era of success that ultimately, you know, was that that incarnation was was short lived. It was a shame it was so short, really, because you probably wonder what they could have gone and done. But then the nineties came along, and you ain't, you know, particularly out of Seattle, completely rewrote the rules of music, you know, in oh. the early nineties. Unfortunately, uh, yeah, yeah. You know, it's funny that the nineties punk scene, uh, uh, that nineties punk scene, was just the absolute opposite of what was happening in the eighties. You know, these grandiose album covers and massive stage shows and long-winded guitar solos and massive hair. Yep. You know, everything was so much bigger. It's like, at some point, someone's just going to come along and go, let's just remove all of that. Mm-hmm. And I do like that sort of music of, of the 90s. It, it is a nice sort of transitional point. But it stuck, killed a lot of bands dead. You know right, what I mean? Yeah. It was one, one of those rare musical moments in history where if you didn't get with it, you you would just stop. Possibly, I, I think the 50s, that era, that birthplace of rock and roll changed that history as well. You know, you couldn't be in a jazz band by 1952. Everyone was having to get with what some studios was doing out of Memphis. And I think that's actually in the 90s was the same. As soon as Nirvana came along, it rewrote the rules. And if you were still going, again, Motley Crue, for example, you still try and go out there and do it like you were in 1988, yeah. people just, just, just didn't want to do it, you know. It's what archaeologists would call a mass extinction event, basically. <laughs> you know, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, yeah. All right. Well, let's let's jump in. Let's start to go track by track a little bit. And look, uh, you know, for folks who are not familiar with Marillion, you know, this is like a 46, 47 minute record. But there's only six songs on the record. I mean, basically all of them, except for he knows you know, are like eight minutes long. You know, so you, you kind of have to strap in, it, and, and there is a little bit of a. They are, they can be operatic. They certainly have some time changes and things like that. Like we've talked about on some of the other prog records we've done over the years, certainly some Genesis stuff. But you start with the title track, 
script for a jester's tear. And I give them credit. They do give writing credit to generally everybody in the band. Everybody, they got to share their writing there where it, it seems that Fish is the one coming up with all the lyrics. But this was, uh, this is one of a, a lament, I would call it, about love lost uh, on a playground of, of broken hearts. And he's kind of telling the story of the, the jester, right? The guy who has to smile and, and carry on anyway, even though his, uh, his heart is broken. What, uh, what stands out for you on this one, uh, Jimmy? I tell you, you know, I think it's such a, in terms of an album's opening album track, that mm-hmm. initial beginning is daunting. And you're right, so that's the scene of the going over the top. But one of my favorite parts in it is that end where it rolls back around the end and you've got the sort of big open power chords and the synthesizer running along. And it's just so, it's powerful. It's a powerful music. You can just listen to that alone, and it is, you know, the big drum fills. And it, when you go from what was at the beginning of the track to get into that point, it, it's, it's brilliant. But I think lyrically, it's brilliant. It's absolutely fantastic. Uh, some name it is just brilliant. But lyrically, I think it's one of some of some of their best because it's just got so much going on, so so well crafted. Uh, particularly that, that the middle section as well. Yeah, I, it's probably one of those songs that you can slice into at any point in time, and it could be a standalone song. You know, there's no point that you could slice and think, yeah. uh, you know, what, what is this? It's it's in that Bohemian Rhapsody way that there's just it's multiple songs within one. Yeah, what do you say, Jackson? I mean, look, it, it's it it becomes epic at some point. At about the two thirty two thirty five mark, there's some really sweet guitar work from Rothery after you know Fish is going over and over and over. And then there's also a gear change to acoustic about halfway through, or at least it sounds acoustic. It's probably just stepping on a pedal or something like that. But it gets symphonic, you know, through here. I mean, what's your take on this one, Jackson? Well, the, what I thought on this one is it, I was trying to remember how this was this band was thought of in my life, and it was always the Genesis kind of ripoff. That's that's what it was billed as. I, I mean, I never really listened to it as a kid, but Listening to this track, I mean, Fish has a great voice, but it really sounds like Peter Gabriel. Like if you if you didn't know anything about it, you'd say, "Oh, that's Genesis." So I think that's where a lot of the uh, maybe apprehension in the United States was because it it did sound like they were trying to sound like them, even though this their their themes are different. What they're writing about is different than Genesis tackled. It, it's just it's really hard to get over that because it. it Sounds so uh, similar to me. Well, it went to 83. Genesis didn't sound like Genesis anymore, right? The, right. the Peter Gabriel era of Genesis was old school, was old mm-hmm. hats. Like, yeah, we don't want to listen to that yeah. anymore if they ever wanted to in America. Because, again, it was a little heady for them. It's it's not, you know, straight ahead rock and roll. Right. But, but you know, I like this one. And I, I think the music is great. The lyrics, it takes you a little while to wrap your head around it. Mm-hmm. You, you have to read them. You have to hear them. You have to think about it. You're, you're probably not going to get the whole theme on the first listen. You're, it's going to take a little while for that to sink in or for you to understand. But the music comes through very well, I think. And, you know, this is a band that was very 
you know, they had a very steady uh, and solid lineup. I mean, Fish did leave at the end of the 80s, right? And, and Mick Pointer was their original drummer. He was on this record. But then he was replaced by Ian Mosley on the next one. And then Mosley never left. And Mark Kelly has always been on the keyboards. And Rothery has always been their guitar player. And Pete Trevelyan is very good bass player. And he's always been on. So, you know, it's like all the musicianship has not only been, uh, you know, heightened and very good, but they've kind of always been able to work together. And that's also a sign of, I don't know, it's, it's great to see. I know a lot of bands have a lot of different lineup changes. It's good to know that they can work together, but it must show a mutual respect and understanding of what everyone's going to want to do if they could stay together that long. Yeah, and I think, you know, when you think about the era it was recorded in, it was not that the era now of digital recording where you can drop the click tracks in and the tempo clicks and copy and paste things in. You know, it was on tape, having to be played live. So you're right, they had to be tight because there were some of the modern recording techniques by, by that early age, but, you know, you're still really, it's not like it is, you know, and a record like that would be so much easier to do now. You could probably do it in your bedroom. Yeah, probably doing bedroom without having any instruments. Yeah, you know, but going to do it, you're right. I think there was a yeah, yeah, a, a very a, a real time, but a real sort of vision of the band was united. I think on a record like this or a song like that, even you've got a everyone needs to be on the same page of, of what you're trying to do. Yeah, and that first one, it's not hard, it's not heavy, but it is pretty proggy, and it's 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 got some nice tones in it. it pretty bits in it if you will and i thought it was uh it, it is an interesting way to to start the the record now we go on to he knows you know which is their second single off of the album uh and there there was a video for it i went back and found it after i watched you on youtube i went and and, and looked at the video which is it's a little intense i mean the, the song itself is about drug use i think specifically heroin and you know, the, the, what you go through fighting it and trying to hide it from your friends and then they're trying to help you and you still, you don't want to know because you're still in the thralls of this. Actually went into 35 on the UK chart. It didn't it didn't chart in America. Back with charting the single, which was one of their non-album songs that they weren't, because, you know, in the early 80s, they had a few singles that were non-album singles and I think that was one and then they turned it into a B-side. But if you were watching MTV and I... I'm fairly certain they never played this on MTV back in the day in America. I, I guess you could have maybe seen it on top of the pops if it got to 35 and they and they showed it. But I'm also guessing they didn't even do that. I don't know. I, to me, this is very interesting as a single. But I like Rothery's guitar because he doesn't overplay on it. He, he seems to know exactly what to play and what not to play. But uh, again, to me... He sounds very much like old Peter Gabriel in this, which is not necessarily his fault because his voice sounds a certain way. But it, it, when he's going like, you got that kind of part in there, I'm like, that, that could be very PG. I don't know. What, what do you think about this one, Jimmy? It's funny because actually when I was listening back to this recently, this song, I remember thinking that it was an obvious single for mine because uh, with the benefit of hindsight, I, I think it's a song that's well ahead of its time. 
mm-hmm. you know, the, the, the dancey bass sort of moon or textures that are in there. A couple of years later, you got Thriller coming out, you know, it's at the World of Storm. And I think when you listen to it, it's like, bum, 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 sort of, mm-hmm. you know, it's got that very, if you come out five years later or, or, or three, four years later, I think it would have probably done a lot better than it did. I dare say it's one of those numbers you could chalk up to uh, at this time or people not not quite ready for it. But then maybe, you know, with that brilliant essence, Maybe this is the Marillion's version of the dance track. Maybe it would have sounded the same, you know. But I, I definitely think that there's, yeah. you know, there's a lot of things happening in there where you go, yeah, she's quite early. I mean, you remember it's 1983, you know. It is. It does seem a lot earlier, you know. Absolutely. And then in the video, they kind of show Fish with his hair parted over and slicked down, like he's a citizen, you know, like he's not the, the you know, super weirdo rock star with the makeup and, and the outfits and all that like he likes to do on stage there, you know. But then they also show him kind of in the padded room, like, you know, we, we need to, to lock him up here. And and then to kind of give the uh, the American juxtaposition, not too long before this album comes out, an album called Metal Health by Quiet Riot comes out, uh, which is probably best known for their Slade cover, Come On, Feel the Noise. But mm-hmm. yeah, Metal Health, they show him in a padded room. And so there's there's a little dichotomy between the UK and the US right there. In the UK, you're telling a story of, all right, this is a guy who's having problems and, and you know he's not listening to his friends. He's trying to make it through. And the Americans are just like, yeah, they're trying to keep me from partying, but they can't stop me, Metal Health. Like, that's that's... That's the difference. Right, Jackson? Yeah, and I, it, when I saw they had a video for this, it's the same thing. I'm like, I got to check this out. And I was a little nervous, but it actually, it fit time. Like, it had it had the mm-hmm. story. It had the, you know, the costume changes. It had the 80s ladies with the way too much makeup and hairspray in the office. But, yeah, it, it looked like it fit in with the other concept videos at the time. And, yeah, this is kind of a heavy-duty message for yeah. rock and roll in 1983 of, of uh, yet, like you said, you're trying to hide this thing, this problem that you're having that's that's affecting your life. And yeah, you're going to end up in a bad way. There's no way around it. And I think, did Fish have, did he have substance abuse problems or did he have, did he know somebody? It seemed like it was pretty personal. I honestly don't know. I know he's in good shape now, mm-hmm. but I, I, I don't know about that uh, for him personally. But, but I mean, you know, in about the two and a half minute part mark kelly's keys come in and it's like wow now this is this is really good and then rothery comes in with this soaring guitar and usually the the keys and the guitar are like fighting over that kind of mid-range you know uh versus the bass or the high-end vocals but it seems like they share that mid-range really well they kind of can weave in together and that's why I'm starting to like this band. You know, it, it may take a minute to get the lyrics to, to understand what they mean. And yeah, sometimes Jackson, like on this song, the lyrics are pretty heavy. Yeah. But you can appreciate the musicianship, and that's what I think a lot of Americans are missing out on by not knowing who like Mark Kelly and Steve Rothery are to me. Do you do you think the problem with bands who become big in England and then struggle to break it in America? You know, I know uh, Mark Boland. Never quite mm-hmm. broke America with T Rex, where massive here, right? Really, and you know, there's a handful. Do you think the problem is becomes that the, these bands become so big here, they then try to adapt the sound too much to fit. Like if America doesn't get something like he knows, you know, they try mm-hmm. and reinvent the sound to what they we think that you guys were like, alienate our fan base here, right? 
and then but not like we get stuck in no man's land because we we then trying too much to adapt to what you guys do without your cultural references to to understand it i think you're onto something there i mean a, a lot of it has to do with just timing i, I always blame the a and r man like if somebody's brilliant in england and for whatever reason they don't come over here or they don't make it quite as big i'm like the a and r man didn't get it i mean it, it doesn't even have to be something like Prague. like we had gary kemp on obviously of spando ballet fame he has two dozen hits in uk and and europe and around the world in america it's true and that's it uh, and his second his second one was like when, when pm dawn basically sampled his hit, you know, and, and then he had a, a second run of that, you know, like I remember I saw a documentary on those guys that was on BBC and they have the song Gold on and I'm like, well, this is a pretty good song. This should be a hit. <laughs> like it was a hit. It just wasn't a hit in America because I'm like, yeah, I'm, I'm 47 and I've never heard the song before. Yet if I lived over there the whole time, my whole life, I would have heard it a lot, you know, so you're right. And it's always bad to try to chase something, especially to chase it if it's not of you, whether you're trying to chase a hit because the style has changed or you're like, oh, we want to make it in America. Uh, let's sing about hot rods and chicks. You know, when you're usually talking about something a little heavier, if it's not endemic or, or very much of you, that doesn't work for you musically. You're right. It can alienate the fans you've already made. Um, so yeah, I think you're onto something. You think he's right on that score, Jackson? I was going to say, or even the perception of that, because you know the the Def Leppard album Pyromania was huge in the United States, but in England it was the oh, you, what are you too good for us now? You're trying to be an American band? Get out of my face! And so they yeah. they they got basically they got the shaft at that point mm -hmm. in time. Obviously, they came back and. We're huge in, in Europe also. But yeah, that, that perception of you're trying to be someone you're not. You're trying to play to an audience that's not your home audience. Go away. And that is a big thing here. If a band starts to sound American, you know, like there's, uh, if, if you're a band from the North here, you know, you say there's slang like, oh, and no for anything and nothing. And obviously they're quite rhythmic words. So you hear them pop up in, in lyrics a lot. And suddenly if you hear them disappear, People go, hang on to it. Where, where's your Yorkshire slang gone? You know, <laughs> uh, and uh, particularly like you know, you hear people doing interviews in the states, and you suddenly go, hmm, it's different. You know, so changing up that the sound there. So, but I don't know if it's the same American bands who, who try and come over here and rake it, but there's certainly a sense of because America's still now today the, the the mecca of music. You know, it's where I'm trying to break, and I've I've had been lucky to have had success with America, but it's still where uh, you know, I can have a number one here tomorrow, but I still do think oh, I like a number one in, in America. Yeah, so even for us still today, America is still the, the, the place that you're chasing it's the, uh, in music. Yeah, and I think, you know, part of why Oasis is so beloved in England is because they weren't trying to kowtow to America. Like, you know, they, they kind of flipped off America, like, screw you. You, you like us? Great. Come to our shows, buy our records. You don't, we don't, we don't fucking care. You know, we, we're, we're going to do our own thing, you know. Also, they kind of came out in America kind of right after grunge had hit, had ebbed and then kind of flowed out. And then people were, in America, were like, okay, we don't want this aggressive rock. We need like Hootie and the Blowfish. We need something nice and happy. And they sell 25 million copies of that record, right? Because we don't, you know, we invested in Nirvana, but he died. We invested in Alice in Chains, but he died. We invest, you know, but they died. You know, and it's like, okay, we don't want to do that. Whereas 
uh, in cool Britannia was going on in the UK with a lot of bands that Oasis may be at the forefront, but there's a lot of that kind of going on with like, we don't need to be just like America. Because that was like the 80s was like Margaret Thatcher and Reagan were waltzing together, right? There, you know, they, it was always the two of us together. And we're like, we don't want that anymore. We want to be our new generation. And that really caught on in Britain. And I think America was kind of doing its own thing. So, I mean, I, I feel like your bands, especially in that era, were great and benefited from not trying to not trying to make it in America. Even if it, it happened, okay, that's great. But they're not like, please, Mr. A&R man, please tell me which single is good. I'll change it, you know, so it'll get on the radio. And it's funny in the early two thousands when the Strokes blew up, you know, mm-hmm. that everyone weren't trying to be the Strokes, but there's that sound that turned into that sort of indie Brit pop sound of like the early Arctic Monkeys and the Coops and stuff like that. You know, it was one of those, again, they weren't trying to take the American sound because, you know, no one's not like the Strokes, but the Strokes. It doesn't matter how well you try and do it. It's one of those bands. You know, and, and their sound blew up here and then England sort of took that sound and became very proud of that British Britpop indie yes. stuff came out of that time. It was very much like a, it may have had its origins out of America, but it's ours now. Like this version is ours, and we're not going to give it up. Well, you were talking yeah. to about about the grunge, and that was only a very small section of time that it was popular. But I think that I think the thing is, even though people, it was a refreshing change, and people like that. People want rock stars. They want to see, but not people that look like homeless people that are like, well, we don't really care right. about, no, you want Motley Crue, you know, we got into a fight at the strip club last night, I crashed my right. car, you know, and then so, and I think that was kind of Oasis too, like they they were that next band that came out and were like, yeah, I love being a rock star, I love partying, I love doing whatever I want to do, giving people yep. the finger, fighting, and they, yeah, that's just what we want, that's what rock and roll is supposed to be, and in a weird way, Marillion is kind of like that, because they did their own thing and they had the the big stage production. And to your point before, Jimmy, it, you don't want to see the the record done exactly the same. You want to see, I paid money for this. I want to see a show. Give me a, mm-hmm. give me, not just play the music, give me a show also that I can performance. see. Performance. Correct. Yeah. Yes. Mm-hmm. And appreciate. I think England's always had that big performance side of, you know, Bowie early on. Mm-hmm. You know, England's always been very much a, a theatrical performance style type of, of, of musician. You know, the, the irony is Oasis, who just stood there, were sort of, <laughs> you know, opposite of what, and that was kind of their statement, but, you know, traditionally, particularly in the 70s, 80s and stuff like that, in England, it was, you're, you're a performer, you're outrageous and, and camp and a bit daft and with that sort of, as I said, Britishness in you that, you know, the, the Marillion certainly had, and I think that's why they were so... Uh, again, and I touched on before, I think it's why it's so big here, that phase is musical validity, like the music is good. You can't, they're not hiding behind the pyrotechnics and, and right. album covers. Like, music's good, you can just listen to the music, but they had that, that there's a sense of you're watching something that you weren't going to go watch anywhere else. Yeah. Hi, I'm Amanda Lehman, and you're listening to Ugly American Werewolf in London Rock Podcasts. American Criminal is a new true crime podcast from the studio behind American Scandal and American History Tellers. Every week, you'll fall deeper into the riveting stories of the country's most clever, craven, and cruel criminals. Fraud, theft, murder, and worse. Whatever the case, whoever the criminal, you don't know the whole story until now. 
the debut season tackles one of the most sensational cases of the 20th century, the Menendez murders. In 1989, young Lyle and Eric Menendez brutally shot their own parents. Prosecutors and the press said it was a multi-million dollar inheritance that led two greedy rich kids to murder. But the picture-perfect facade this Hollywood family built hid troubling abuse. Could these teenagers have been driven to kill? Or was it even in self-defense? Listen now. Go to AmericanCriminal.com or search for and follow American Criminal wherever you get your podcasts. Well, and speaking of music, we better get to the next song or where, you know, it's going to take, this is going to be a three-hour episode here. So, <laughs> but, but the third song and the final song on the first side, The Web, uh, <laughs> Don't Give Me Your Problems. I really like this one. I, I think that, you know, it's they kind of start off soft with the acoustic, at least acoustic-like guitar from Rothery. And I think it's probably overall his best guitar work on the album. But it's it's based on the kind of the Greek myth of the, the Shroud of Laertes. If, for those who, who weren't classically educated, you know, it's like Penelope's waiting for Odysseus to come back from Troy, you know, uh, after the Trojan War. It takes him 20 years and she's got all these suitors. She's like, okay, well, as soon as I finish this shroud, I will make my decision. So she would knit it, create it all day, and then at night she would pull it apart because she's still waiting for Odysseus. I love Greek mythology and Roman mythology. I, I think it's it's great storytelling, and obviously it translates to, to kind of every language. But you can see there's a difference here between, again, an album that came out the exact same year, maybe right before it, Peace of Mind, had Flight of Icarus. Also a classic story, a classic tale, but it's about death, and it's obviously Iron Maiden puts their, their style on it here, but... I don't know. This one really stands out on the album to me. Let's let Jackson go first this time. What what uh, what, is, what stands out on the web for you? Well, it, it's it's the the last song of the first side of the record. I think here is where we kind of run into a problem in in the United States audience because we're looking for that riff. We're looking for the, the power chords, and this is kind. It's almost like a continuation. Like it 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 doesn't jump out to you right off the bat. You have to listen to it a couple of times and then you start to see the differences in between. So it's dense. I, I do agree with you. I like the, I like the the story of it. I like that. There's a little more behind this deal and, and the music is it's good, but it's really, now you're really kind of working to, to get into this. And I think you'll be rewarded. I just think we had a hard time getting to that point. Yeah, I mean, it's uh, nine minutes, yeah. right, Jimmy? I mean, it's not everybody can listen to a nine-minute right. epic. No, you know, reminds me of uh, the first time that Zeppelin played Stairway to Heaven and people were walking out to go get another drink, you know. <laughs> <laughs> That's not a whole lot of love. What the hell? Yeah, yeah, you know, and people are, yeah, it were, um, okay, a nine-minute song is always a risky one, you know. Uh, but I think ties in perfectly as an ender for that first side, you know, with the big, phone slam down and it's I, I think when you're building an album the middle part of it's the most important it, beginning is easy you start hard and you know give them what you want and the end is the same you it's like a concert you end on the big number it's the middle ones and this is a perfectly really taking what two maybe three middle songs and turn them into one right uh, in, in length and yeah. it's just beautifully it's be brilliantly like the whole album a lot of their albums of this era but particularly this album Brilliantly paced, and I think that's it what's is. important. Yeah, and and so after Rothery goes and, and does some amazing 
guitar work in the middle. You know, then Kelly comes in with his keys to kind of keep it moving along until they go back another kind of time change to go back to the acoustic bit again. I'm like, well, this is brilliant. This is wonderful music. I mean, yes, it's very long. They would never play this on American rock radio, but but it's great. And then I like the way that it kind of plays out. But then I'm starting to wonder, okay, so I understand the story of Penelope. So how is that relating to Fish? Is it because he's isolated? You know, is is he procrastinating putting something off, like making a decision? Because that, that's kind of what it's about. Like, well, I'm just going to pull this apart so I don't have to do anything. So I don't have to choose tomorrow. Is it about... And then at the end, when he burns the shroud, is it, okay, I'm finally ready to move on? Is it about relationship? Are you now re-entering the world? Are you re-entering the dating world? I don't know. You can. That's what I think is brilliant about some of Fish's lyrics. Some of it's pretty straightforward, like maybe with Forgotten Sons. But, but some of it, you know, it is open to your own interpretation, and it, you can kind of meld it to whatever's going on in your life. I think, I think that's what makes music most brilliant so i don't like talking about what my songs are about because i see it's like when you read a book you get an imagery in your head when you watch a film you're told what it is uh, yeah. and i i like to leave my lyrics open for the interpretation of the listener so i've got a view it's my song when i write it and i record it once i release it, it's no longer mine it becomes people's that's right and they're the ones who choose if it's a hit or not. It's not me. You know, they're the ones who, who like it and buy it. So again, on that sense, I do like that he leaves it open to the, the you know, the, the listener from guys like my dad who heard it when it first came out in his early 20s to guys like Selzy here at an older age in uh, from another culture to myself who heard it at six, seven, eight years of age, taking it, it you know I mean? It, it, it can be adapted for... The, the fact that you can have those three different age and era brackets, yep, I, I think it's a testament to to the song. Yeah, absolutely. And it, I gave I gave Steve Rothery big props here. We, we are we are lead guitar guys. We had Eddie Van Halen and Jimmy Page on our wall in college when we lived together, and didn't know who Steve Rothery was before I discovered Marillion. Actually, the first time I heard of Marillion was they used to have a Sunday night on MTV, like the British comedy strip. They would have Monty Python. They would have the young ones, and they would have the comic strip <laughs> yeah. presents. And I love the young ones with Rick Mayall and Adrian Edmondson. And it was basically they were bored, and they turned on the TV, and then they start playing God Save the Queen, or they, they start playing out like it's time to go to bed, you spotty little kids, you know. And he's like, oh, not this song again. Play some Hawkwind or Marillion. And that's the only time I'd ever heard of Marillion in my life was <laughs> Neil the, the hippie asking the TV to play Marillion. <laughs> This band again, they're always on crap. What about some Hawkwind or Marillion? But no, but Garden Party, starting off the second side, now this was the first single, and obviously they cut about three minutes out of it so they could make a single version <laughs> and, and, and get it on, uh, make a video. And I know I've already said this before, but to me, this is very selling England by the pound to me. This is like very jabbing at British society quite a bit. It sounds quite a bit like Banks and Hackett together, not to mention Fish a little bit like 
like Peter Gabriel, but they're, they're they're taking the piss out of these people, right? I'm rucking, I'm fucking, you know. They're, they're you know, they're, and and but the video's hilarious. Have you seen the video? Yeah, yeah, it's good stuff. I was gonna say the, the for me the video kind of it it sold more what they were trying to do, and it, even though it's they're they're kind of making fun of British society, and you know you think you're better than I am. This one kind of resonates with the with the U.S. audience too because it's that you know it, you don't it, you're not better than I. No one's better than anyone else. You know we'll come and ruin your stupid party, and you know <laughs> get under the table and and you know put the what the salamanders or whatever on there and. Yeah, just just basically just ruin it because we can, and you're not better than we are. And I think, the, the like I said, the video really helps you helps hammer home what they're trying to tell you in this one. Yeah, no, I was going to say I agree with with that exactly, and it, it's it's again, it's a. Uh, I think this is good for people listening on who don't quite understand what that Britishness is. The 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 taking the piss culture is is very, you know, what would now be described as bats and bar and stuff like that is is much more a thing, you know. And uh, if you look at shows like Forty Towers, completely. Mm-hmm. Those sort of people, you know, sort of tough type guys who are trying to be better than they are, and it, it's uh, that ingrained it within the, the British culture is that sense of you know I'll take the mick out of you and do it in such a playful way. You, if you're one of those people taking the mick out of you, you're not going to know. You know, everyone else will know, but you're not going to know you're having the bit taken out of you because you just don't get it. And then that's what's quite clever. I don't know if that's an American sort of thing to do. You know, I feel like it's a bit more straightforward. If someone's taking the piss, you're going to know. Where here, it's a, it's a bit more in a way of, you know, everyone's going to get the joke, but you. <laughs> yeah, we, we do sarcasm. I mean, the, the British joke is Americans don't get sarcasm. We just say, oh, no, we could never understand something as, as heightened as sarcasm. That would always <laughs> go over our heads. I think, though, that it's funny. Because I lived, I lived in St. John's Wood when I was in London, which is a pretty posh area, and and I often don't get along with with a lot of working class people in America. Not because you're working class, but just because you're not smart necessarily, but you think you know everything, and that's the way I found posh British people. Like they think they know everything, and they're going to tell you because they're your betters. Whereas like with working class English people, I got along great. I'm like, these people are awesome. You know, they're cool. They're funny. They'll take the piss out of these, you know, like the old man who lived above me who either had a stick up his, you know what, or he didn't. And that was the real problem. So like, I can't deal with these, you know, people who think because they're upper class British, they have all the answers. I'm like, I just, I, I don't get that. So it was, that was kind of the part of my education. Like it's, being working class is is pretty cool, I think, in, in Britain. It's a badge of honor. Yeah, yeah. It like, I'm, I'm from the north of England. That's a badge of honor to be from the north. You know, I'm, I'm from the north of England before I'm from England. You know, And there's a, there's a cultural divide between the north and the south for that reason. Yep. South don't give a shit. They want to come up here. They want to know about it. And, and the north know that, that 
that's what, how they feel. So yeah, there's very much a, a and again, really being a northern man, you know, have that sense of of and more so in the eighties or two of this us against them. But yeah, you know, I, I'm proud to be northern. I'm I'm proud to be a northerner first before I say I'm proud to be English. I'm down with that. That's cool, man. That's awesome. All right, so past the garden party, which is a bit of the class war, you get to Chelsea Monday. And you were talking about this one a little bit earlier. Yeah. This is a story about a girl dreaming of a better, maybe a more glamorous life. It's kind of funny in that I think in the story they're kind of talking about, it's like she's a small town or provincial girl who's moved to Chelsea and now she's trying to find her way into higher society. Nowadays, if you move to Chelsea, you're already in higher society, man. <laughs> I I couldn't have afforded to live in Chelsea and I lived in a pretty nice place, but... <laughs> no, I mean, that's that's too, that's way too nice. So, I mean, I think that the early 80s, late 70s that Fish came out of when they may have written this song, London's a lot different today than it was then. But it, it's kind of the old story, I mean, of, of a girl, maybe a small town girl, dreams of making it into the big city, and maybe things don't work out. That's a pretty universal tale that we're all familiar with in America. A lot of songs about this kind of thing. But Oh, yeah, and I think this phrase it's just another Chelsea Monday can be applicable any you know I mean I know when I moved into Sheffield in the north I'd been living in Australia moved here didn't really know anyone could just come back it's like middle of the pandemic so the idea of searching after trying to get the music back on on, on you know I me mean, pick up where I left off sort of thing before the pandemic so the idea of it just being another Chelsea Monday would be applicable to being another Sheffield Monday you know where everything's rolling through you're trying to get your feet on going to get these things out then you know, you get onto shows like this, but as you're trying to do that, it's just ultimately yet another the views the same out the window. You know, it's just yeah. another Sheffield or Chelsea Monday. So, lyrically, one of my favourites, I probably of all time songs. I think I would dare say. Wow. Yeah, I think the guitar solo is beautifully emotive. The lyrics, are, as I said, applicable to anyone. And if you're not paying attention, the song's not ended when you think it has. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but yeah, no, a song that definitely I will find a way to tie into my music somewhere if I can. I just think it's one of those brilliant all-round songs that, in my eye, should have been a single. But maybe that comes from the guitar lover in me. Well, yeah, well, you know, it's, it's, again, it's hard to have an eight-minute single. Uh, you have to slice some of this stuff out of there, you know. But you're right. And then at the end where there's kind of, it's like a spoken word thing. Where it's, it's, it's like someone on the street talking about, uh, oh, they just fished her out of the old father, which I guess would be the Thames. So mm. did she commit suicide? Did she find the wrong guy who she was trying to make her life better and that's where she ended up did she have to become a prostitute to live in the big city and that's just one of the pitfalls of it i don't know again and if you're not listening closely because that's not a sung part of the song right it's it's not like the core you're not like following the story that you might miss some of that again that's again open to interpretation but it sounds like she died 
And again, just another Chelsea Monday. There'll be another one off the bus or off the train, you know, from a small town here any minute to take her place, right? Yeah, you know, and the, the line that, you know, they fish out that she was smiling as if it was a long time. But you're right. It is that same thing. The next day is just another Chelsea Monday, you know, or Monday in Chelsea, however you want to see it. But yeah, no, a very subtle song. And as I said, that spoken word bit, I'll be nicked really from mm-hmm. the idea for, for, for outside. I thought it was brilliant that you know idea and uh, uh, very innovative. I think of the time. I can't think of very many songs in of that era. Any particular thing that we're doing that sort of cross conversation. Pink Floyd, I suppose, we're, we're doing it with you know Dark Side of the Moon right. and stuff like that. But you know, it, it's very it it, it were it, definitely an album. I think that probably shaped a lot more albums that came out of England after that than I think people probably realise. You know, with, with some of the ideas, very very you know unique ideas that just weren't weren't being done. Yeah, no, that's an interesting take. Yeah, definitely. It's it's a classic one for them. I mean, look, there's a for our American fans who might say, you know, should I start with script for a jester's tea or how do I get into Marillion? They like Van Halen have a best of collection, a two CD set called the Best of Both Worlds, and the first one is the Fish era uh, when he's singing, uh, and the second one is the Hogarth era. Uh, and I picked it up. I picked it up during the pandemic. I'm like, all right, well, I gotta. I got to learn more about this band, Marillion, and I thought, well, this is a brilliant way to do it. But more than half the songs from this record are on that. Uh, <laughs> so you, you, if you want to start with this, well, you can. Obviously, you can do it on a streaming service. But go check out Best of Both Worlds because it'll have most of this and it'll have all the Fish Era greatness. But then you can also see uh, what they did later on as well. Yeah. Time's, time's moving on us here. So let's get to Forgotten Songs. Uh, sorry. Forgotten Sons, the last song on the record, uh, and this is about the troubles in Northern Ireland. And I'd be curious on your take on this. It's all about perception, right? I mean, uh, we celebrate the Boston Tea Party, where uh, Americans in the 1770s jumped on a ship and threw all their tea overboard. Well, in the British paper, it was probably terrorists attacked our tea. You know, whereas here, like freedom fighters fought back against the oppression British. So it's all kind of depends on, you know, your perception and where you are there. But I, I think the song is is very poignant and there's a lot going on in this song. I think it's very well written by Fish and versus again, it's another song that came out in nineteen eighty three, Sunday Bloody Sunday by U two, you know, kind of is talking about this same thing. That's more up in your face. It's called Sunday Bloody Sunday. You, you understand what that's about. This is more about how, yeah, there's a war, but aren't you forgetting there's there's sons on both sides that we're losing. They're not just grist for the mill. There's a dad who is drinking his way through the news because he's worried about his son. And there's, you know, there's a mom who's who's worried about this. It, some of the lyrics are brilliant. You're just enough for coffin on its way down the Emerald Isle, A-I-L-S-L-E, you know, instead of versus I-S-L-E. You know, it's very good stuff from the dole cue to the regiment, a profession in a flash. Because like, oh, you need a job? Yeah, here, go fight and lose your life for this cause that you may or may not believe in. Like, this is, in a way, it's a lot more poignant, even more than Sunday Bloody Sunday. It's just maybe a little less accessible. Well, I was going to say that I think that's the that's the problem with this this music and this song to begin with. It You know, Sunday Bloody Sunday is very... It's got the chorus. It's got the you know. It's it's more of a sing along song. This is very dense. I mean, I know they do, there is no chorus in this song at all. He does mention Forgotten Sons a couple of times, but there isn't that, that sing along anthem to this. Even though 
it, it's a really heavy duty topic and they do make some really good points in it. It's, it's just very, very dense. Had to bring it into it as well like, as a final track of a record. A few hours ago, I was listening through to it. It ends. It's done. There's no big yeah. ending. There's no mm-hmm. drawn out massiveness to it. It is forgotten songs. Bang, done. Album over. And I sort of stopped and went, "Oh shit, okay, so, <laughs> that's right, that's right." You know. <laughs> that's right. But yeah, no, definitely a, a song that again lyrically changed a few things. Probably resonating with with various people still today. Unfortunately, which is, yeah, which is why I think this album is probably one of those albums that I think people would say have been inspired by more still now than they realise. You know, one of those bands don't probably get their dues for it. Yeah, they, they were probably ahead of their time, even though yeah. they were seen as kind of like behind, I guess, because in 83, like we talked about before, Genesis had left this behind a while ago. Even Queen had left it behind. You know, Correct. their uh, yeah. records were very similar in vain and style, but by 83, they'd gone down the synth pop route. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, you. That's what I would say. Yeah, if they come out in 1973, it'd probably be wouldn't fit in, but probably viewed in a, in a different light. Yep. Right. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah, that, that's exactly my note here. Right. Only I put 76. I'm like, <laughs> if this had come out in 76, you know, when Hackett was still in Genesis and like, and and yes, we're still kind of going through their kind of epic stage. I'm like, this Marillion would be put right up there. But because it came out in '83, when Duran Duran was the big, you know, British act, especially here in America. And and I realize you didn't have MTV. We're really children of the MTV generation. But like we talked to our buddy Neil on, on Def Lep Pod, which is probably the best Def Leppard podcast out there. It's like, we didn't even get MTV till like 1989 or something like that. And so it's like you could watch Top of the Pops and then maybe they show a few videos on there and maybe there was like a a friday night show or something like that but like that's it they didn't have that 24-hour thing where we would just be glued there what's on next kind of thing and that's how we all got our music back in the 80s you know whereas you know it was it was different in your culture there so you had to go hunt something like this down but i feel like if you did you'd be rewarded yeah absolutely and i think it's probably so culturally a bit the same here now where you know I, i'm most trying to get over to the states for a first tour at the moment because uh, everyone's saying oh you can land anywhere and probably, probably pick up a show we don't need booking like there's just that culture and the music going on where here it's still very much it, it's a slightly more guarded culture you know i always say in england it's not very trendy to say you like a band <laughs> Mm-hmm. Where in I find like you Americans with my own music are much more forthcoming in oh I was listening to a record today while driving it's just as a message just to let me know you know where over here you probably it would be considered maybe a bit lame or, or something to to reach out with a message like that so you know it, the culturally it's culture I think there's still that sort of it's a different way of, of accessing music or, or speaking about the music that you like so are you are you planning a U.S. tour? I am, yeah, yeah. So I've been doing a lot of records, been selling in America recently, like the singles as well, lots of streaming, which has been nice yeah. to take out in New York. So it seems to be the East Coast, they seem to quite like me, uh, which is nice. So 
hopefully I went my way down the Big Apple and, and, and down and around. I mean, I just love to get there and just soak up the, the musical culture of America as much as anything. But yeah, I don't quite know. They, they seem to find me quite interesting, uh, the Americans. So um, we'll see what happens when I land there thusly. But yeah, no, it's, it's funny. For years, I couldn't break America at all, no how much I tried. And then I kind of gave up and went, all right, then well. And then you guys sort of found me, particularly out of Texas originally. Uh, and I should in Texas, yeah, 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 you you do you do real well in Austin, absolutely. Yeah, so I've sort of been told, so yeah, keep the city centers while I'm told, but um, yeah, no, you know, and it's just grown from there. Not so much like sort of West Coast yet. Um, it's probably a saturated market, really. But yeah, the East Coast definitely. They um, I don't quite know how they're finding it, but they're they're definitely finding it. So as long That's as good. Keep selling, yes. Fingers crossed. If we keep buying the records. <laughs> so, so speaking of that, where can we find you? Yeah, everywhere, really. So, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, even uh, YouTube, Bandcamp, Spotify, and Jimmy Madden, M A W D O N. If you search me, and you'll find me. And then, yeah, you can catch all our the back catalogue of singles and albums, and and then, yeah, as I said, touring around England. So I'm in Nottingham tonight, uh, or whenever this maybe gets viewed by someone in Nottingham in your past. <laughs> yes. <laughs> And, uh, yeah, I think Lincoln as well, to my back into Sheffield. So, and then, yeah, the States. So, you know, I'm really working with people there now to, um, as I said, it's still the mecca, but it's still the, it's the place you've got to make it. And I don't know if it's quite fortunate that I've got, you know, everyone's trying to force their way into America and America sort of found me uh, organically, whether that, that bodes well. But, yeah, it's funny. I uh, didn't quite know what to make of America when I first started doing well. But as I said, the, the culture of, let me know that you know you like me is uh it's brilliant but you know whether i don't know if everyone quite understands what i'm on about half the time well that's all right you know and, and we wish you the best of luck uh, in england uh, in europe in australia around the world but yeah coming to america please keep us informed of what you're up to and, and when you're coming i mean we're we're kind of in the big bit in the middle. Big Jagger always like say, "Well, there's the little, there's, there's the bits on the edges." And he's talking about like New York and LA. He's like, and they always get the music, but there's the big bit in the middle. You have to kind of go out and conquer. And there's there's little spots here and there. Gary mentioned Austin. I bet in Nashville you would love it there. Mm. Um, you know, there's usually in Ohio, like Cleveland and, and Cincinnati and Columbus, very rock and roll friendly kind of place. But there, there's some other places uh, that, you know, you might have to trudge up there and try to win them over. So uh, we wish you all the best. And we thank you for coming on and give us a little education about Marillion today. I think that our listeners, if they would take the time to explore, it might take a minute, but I think they would appreciate what's going on with them. No, thank you so, absolutely. I think, as I said, band I love, Band I've got listening to, I'm sure my dad will enjoy listening back to this podcast. And uh, as an actual, you probably should have had him on, really. You know what I mean? He grew up <laughs> Maybe one day. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, as I said, a, a band that has definitely shaped tracks on the, the first album, probably really the second album. So yeah, no, a, a band I love. But thanks so very much for having me on as well, guys. It's been appreciate uh, it. much appreciated. No, great to meet you, Jimmy. Thanks uh, for everything. And yeah, all the best to you in your music and career, man. Thank you, Namaste. That was a fun interview, man. I'll tell you what. I'll tell you what. I didn't know what to expect because this dude was a rock star and doing mm-hmm. his own stuff. He was a really cool dude to talk to. Yeah. And 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 cool that it wasn't all about, well, you know, it, I mean, he did bring it back to his music, but but more like as a fan and not like right. when I write a song, here's what I okay, whatever. No, that yeah, he was a really cool guy. He's a, I think he's a guy we could have on again if we wanted to talk, especially about Queen or something yeah, like definitely. that. That would be cool. 
Because that's a that's another band too that really never. I know they had We Will Rock You, but they never really caught on in the United States like they did in England. They were super popular. They definitely sold a lot of records over here, and they had some big hits. But you're right; it doesn't mean the same, right? Yeah, Queen in the U.S. versus England, and even if you watch the movie Bohemian Rhapsody, I remember when Queen came on. I was watching it live back in the day. They really did go nuts in in Wembley for right. that. If they had played Philadelphia, sure, people would have loved it, but it wouldn't have been the same reaction, you know? Correct. And that's that's why certain bands played in London and certain bands played in, in Philly, you mm-hmm. know? So, no, talented guy, Jimmy. Uh, I'm glad to hear that he's coming to the U.S., or at least trying to. I'm glad to hear that his, his music is selling here. Uh, yeah, we, we connected with him over social media. So he is on Instagram. Uh, he, he's got a YouTube channel where you can see and hear from Jimmy there and he's it's not just his performances sometimes it's kind of what he's up to that day mm-hmm. and, uh, maybe go into a gig or whatever enjoyable conversation and I'm glad that we had someone who understands British culture and music to kind of get us into Brilliant because again other than hearing Neil on the young ones screaming oh please some Hulk win a Marillion <laughs> that was the first time I'd heard of them and the first time I heard them was decades after that. Mm. Uh, and and I've heard a lot of rock and roll over my years. So if I don't know anything about them, then the average rock fan I know doesn't know much about them. So if we can shine a little bit of a light on them for the American audience, uh, hey, I, I think that's a good thing. Right, right. And especially a band like we were talking about before where it's, it's beneficial. They did have singles, but you need to listen to the whole record as it was intended start to finish. And Absolutely. Listen to the full, you know, not the four minute and 13 second track, the full 840 or whatever, however they put it together. And check them out on YouTube. If you see like an early 80s, or early to mid 80s Marillion concert with Fish as their lead singer, you might have to ignore his hair or <laughs> lack thereof because sometimes his hair is just awful. It's like mm-hmm. it's obvious he's losing it. That's okay. It happens to all of us. And just look at the performance. Look at the way he moves around on stage. He's got the makeup on. He's got the outfits on. And he's giving a performance. Right. To the backdrop of this incredible musicianship, especially by Steve Rothery, who I know guitar people love him in England. American guitar fans are usually more blues or metal based, mm-hmm. but I, I think you'll you'll really appreciate him. Plus, you put in Pete Trebuevas on the bass is brilliant, and Mark Kelly on the keys. They all just make this really fantastic music together, and it's obviously worked because on that score, they haven't had a lineup change in more than forty years. Right. And and that leads to to a cohesiveness that you have to have when you play music like that. You can't be swapping people in and out and have it be as tight as as what they what they come up with. Well, folks, that is our discussion of Marillion's a script for adjusters tier with Jimmy Madden, young up and coming musician, is a great guy and. Very well-versed in Prague, and Marillion certainly grew up, listened to it with his dad, which is great to hear, and he's out there touring right now, folks. He's released some records. Go to JimmyMadden.com. I think you'll like his artwork, especially you Queen fans. We'll see a little little something there that, that maybe looks familiar, but his, his music is cool, and we hope to see him in the United States here before too long. Really appreciate his take on it. Just another band that, for whatever reason, very English, and they resonated well with the English rock music fans, certainly the prog rock fan, even though they came up 
during a time where Prague was very out, and I don't know how popular Prague was generally, but by the time you're in that early to mid-80s when it's all very new wave and glossy MTV, that wasn't going to happen in America, no matter how great the songs were, no matter how great the musicians were. It just wasn't going to fly in America. But they did find their foothold in England. Glad they did. Haven't had a whole lot of turnover in their band, so they've been very steady. Had some great output over the years. I don't know how many other Marillion records we might do, but like I said, for you U.S. fans, maybe check out Best of Both Worlds. Definitely check out this script for adjusters here, and by all means, Go to JimmyMadden.com. Go follow him on Twitter or Instagram or Facebook or whatever. He's always good about reaching out to his fans, letting them know what they're what he's up to and what he's playing, when he's playing, where he's playing, all that kind of stuff. So thank you, Jimmy, so much. We appreciate it. We hope to see you stateside here sometime real soon. And with that, folks, as usual, we want to know, do we get something right? Do we get something wrong? Do we miss the point? Do we leave out your favorite part? you got to let us know. You email us. It's UglyAmericanWerewolf at gmail.com. You can also tweet or DM us at Ugly underscore Werewolf or at ActionJack72. Let us know about the albums, the bands, the concerts, the DVDs, the rock properties you want us to know about. And as always, thank you to Pantheon Pods, as we are a proud member of Pantheon Podcast. And special thanks to RareVinyl.com for sponsoring us. Look, you want to get some of that original artwork in pristine condition from first edition Marillion releases, go to RareVinyl.com. Use code PODCAST. Save yourself 10% on your orders. Next week, Jackson and I are looking to get back together stateside. Now that I've been here for a month, I've been trying to get settled here in my midwestern hometown i'm gonna go see jackson down in florida and hopefully we get to hang out and maybe make another show maybe make a couple of shows maybe just have a little bit of fun but that'll be coming to you here very soon on the ugly american werewolf so as always look please download and subscribe wherever you get your podcast if you're thinking about it please give us a positive review because that just helps us find more rock and roll fans like you around the world And until next time, to all of you rock and rollers all around the world, be cool and stay safe. What would you do to achieve the American dream? The big house, the happy family, the money. Would you put in the hours? Would you take a big swing? What's the problem? What's the problem? Would you lie? Would you cheat? Would I shop? Would I shop? Would you kill? Yes. <laughs> My mom and dad. My mom and my dad. From Airship, the studio behind American Scandal, comes a new true crime history podcast. I'm Jeremy Schwartz, and I'll be taking you inside the minds of some of our most notorious felons and outlaws, exploring the dark side of the American dream. In my new show, American Criminal, you'll meet the picture-perfect brothers who killed their parents, the thief who stole babies, the crypto king who siphoned off billions and plenty more. From assassins and gangsters to killers and con artists, Whatever the case, whoever the criminal, you don't know the full story until now. Don't miss the debut season of American Criminal, the Menendez Brothers, beginning February 29th. 
Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Or to get early ad-free access to the entire season first, plus hundreds of other ad-free history podcast episodes, subscribe at intohistory.com.